I'm with Janet Chandler, the longtime teacher at Hamilton Southeastern High School and president of the Hamilton Southeastern Education Association. Janet, it's always great to talk to you, having you on a podcast once again, but uh, not under the best of circumstances. So I'm sorry about that. But that's okay. I know everyone wishes that we had different circumstances than what we have today. That's for sure. Yeah, and this is one reason I wanted to talk to you at this point in time is this is Teacher Teacher Appreciation Week, if I can say that right. And I really can think of no one more connected to the entire teaching staff throughout HSE and the school district. So I guess the first obvious question here is how, based on the feedback you're getting and even your own experience, How's the district's teaching staff handling this virtual learning system you've been dealing with for several weeks now? I won't lie. It's been a challenge. Uh, I I think, uh, you know, no one really signed up for this. You know, when you become a teacher, you want to build relationships with kids and their families. And it's very challenging to do that in a, in a setting where, you are dependent upon someone else kind of joining you to do that uh, versus, you know, being in the class. I think um, the teachers are doing a great job. I I hear lots of uh, positive comments, but, you know, it is coming at a cost to them. And uh, especially I think the teachers that are struggling the most are the ones that have small children that are doing e-learning also. So when you have the small children, you have to help them monitor their e-learning when you're trying to also provide it for your students. I think that could be a challenge. Well, I'm just thinking about teachers the other day. And when, you know, there are many teachers, depending on the subject and the grade level, sometimes you're doing lesson plans, maybe a few days or weeks ahead of time. Sometimes you've got that plan out out for the rest of the semester. And now that you've gone to virtual learning and and really three days a week of classroom, so-called classroom work and dealing with the students, and now you've uh, got two days during the week, Monday and Friday, for them to do other work. I mean, this really must just just throw a lot of those plans out the window. So this must be a tremendous amount of stress on the teaching staff just from that point of view, I would think. Five days of e-learning that first week we were out. And we had a meeting with district administrators and our discussion team that has been meeting weekly since we have uh, been out due to COVID-19. And we all agreed... (laughs) We could not do five days a row of this. You know, there's just, uh, I know that um, I'm a high energy person. And after day five, I was done. (laughs) I I felt like toast. And so uh, we went to three days a week. And I think we're able to kind of get the rhythm of that a little bit better. Uh, What is different, though, is the fact that, you know, it's three days a week with, supposed to be, you know, a half hour per subject a day of those three days. And so in a secondary classroom, you know, in a high school, you're in for 50 minutes for five days versus 30 minutes for three days. And uh, you also need to be conscientious of the amount of work, you know, that is assigned that the district has now made consistent for Mondays at noon. By the way, uh, just so people know, you and I are both uh, doing this through Zoom from our homes. So we are both uh, we both live in 
areas where lawn mowing is going on. So you may hear a little, I know with, on my end, you may hear a little of that. Uh, I want to just uh, follow up on, on, on the whole stress thing, because I know it's difficult for the teachers, but then the parents and the whole family sometimes has to struggle with this. Often parents are working out of the home as well as the children going to school at home. And they. how can families help support the teaching staff, the teachers their kids have in a situation like that? But I know that families have to be incredibly stressed, you know, because not only with just dealing with the global pandemic and the financial and health ramifications of that, but then also not being used to being the homeschool teacher, you know, that's, you know, that's very different for them. And uh, as my mom told me years ago, like when I got to fourth grade math, I was on my own or luckily I had an engineer that lived next door to me. So, uh, you know, to be able to help me for a subject that, you know, it's not in my wheelhouse being a humanities type, Uh, you know, so families, you know, have had to shift their schedules a bit, especially the younger ones, you know, the what's happened with older kids. It seems like uh, from my standpoint, anyway, uh, they seem to sleep until around sometime between noon and three, they get up, you know, and uh, I I do know um, uh, one of my colleagues at high school is Zooming with his kids at seven or eight o'clock at night because that's when they'll do it, Uh, you know, so, you know, we're all kind of, you know, making sacrifices and for some with young families, you know, that's difficult to do, uh, you know, around bedtime and things of that nature. You know, Emma Kate fights uh, a chalkbeat had a great story the other day, and she was uh, just basically saying that uh, well, she was getting some stories from various teachers, and there was one I think it was a fourth grade teacher that was talking about you know how some some of her students are all ready to go and they're showered and they're ready, and there are other students that are actually on the virtual learning from. They're they're actually still in bed with the covers on. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty wild set of stories. But so it's interesting that some of these students are are having classes seven or eight at, at night, and the teachers are accommodating that. I can tell you one thing: I never I never got that schedule in high school. <laughs> yeah, probably most high school kids would like. You know, where the district is in conversation about you know whether to flip for the future, and so. Uh, this study is of uh, global pandemic and quarantine learning is definitely showing that the high school kids like to sleep in, but I'm not sure that any schedule would accommodate how much they want to sleep. You know, I, I don't see us starting at one o'clock in the afternoon uh, uh, to be able to help them. Another thing I've noticed is that several of my kids are working uh, because they have you know, jobs that are deemed essential. So some work at a grocery store, uh, some work at a pizza place. And so uh, they have not been able to Zoom, you know, during like what you would call a traditional school day, uh, the in the afternoon of it anyway. <laughs> I know not to ask them in the morning uh, because they, they work, you know, they have to work. And so, uh, you know, that's also interesting to see that, you know, they are not keeping themselves free, you know, during the school day time. They are accepting extra hours or working, you know, whenever they can. 
Well, you brought up the flip, and I, I, I got to insert a question about that because, as I recall, there was a, a committee being formed. I don't know if it's been formed yet to uh, try to come up with some recommendations on that. And I know their the teachers have representation. Has that, with everything else going on, has that group done any work at all? Well, that group was supposed to meet uh, for the first time uh, in March, about the time that we went out. And so um, they were suspended from their first meeting. They did meet virtually last week. Um, and because they got a late start, they're also not going to uh, have the recommendation to the board until November instead of October. Okay. So it's called Operation Right Time Advisory Committee. The acronym is ORTAC. <laughs> now that's an uh, interesting, uh, interesting acronym. So for those who may not know what we're talking about with the flip, we're really talking about the starting and ending times of uh, the school day for the various grade levels. So that's the the basics behind that. And it was quite a debate. So the decision was made to 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 have a committee recommend and look at all the angles of it. So I just had to insert that in there. I want to ask you this. Um, are there any particular stories, examples that have come your way or that you know of personally of local teachers that are done something special that you can share with me in handling this, this coronavirus uh, pandemic? I think, I think not just big things, but just like the little things, like teachers knowing that, that kids – might not be okay during this time, you know, that they might need more emotional support. And that's very challenging for a teacher to do electronically. Uh, so I, I think there, there's been a lot of shift in practice and trying to, you know, make sure the kids are okay. Um, as far as other specific actions, uh, I've heard of little scavenger hunts throughout the house, you know, for younger ones to, find different objects, race to get it, zoom back and, you know, show what you've got and, you know, just fun things like that. You know, it's been so challenging, I think, for everyone to just figure out what to do. Uh, you know, we, when we went out, you know, March 13th was our last school day. And teachers were allowed to come in on Monday, March 16th, if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. Uh, many teachers were afraid uh, to come in. And so now teachers are asking to go back in the buildings because there are things that they want. I mean, like they might have books that they'd like to share with kids, you know, during this time that might be locked up in those rooms. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to get back soon. But we, it might not be until after school is out. We don't know for sure. Um, other things that uh, that teachers are doing, um, I think that you have seen on social media, maybe you know signs made or things of that nature. That you know some of that stuff happened at the beginning um, when we were at a stricter stay-at-home order in Fishers than some surrounding communities were, and so you know we've been having you know to adhere you know, to the guidelines in Fishers. And obviously now we're under the state guidelines, which are the same as, as Fishers right now. 
but it's, uh, I think, just trying to get the kids to connect, you know, and, uh, you know, at the, as they get older, you know, they're less likely to connect, I think, because they have more teachers to connect with. And, uh, and this is a time of year that kids struggle anyway, if we were back in physical school, like after spring break until the end of the school year, I mean, like it, it's a, it's a battle, you know, to try, try to keep uh, everyone focused on the prize at the end of the tunnel here. And so uh, that battle is made worse, I think, with this situation when you don't physically see the kids every day. I think uh, your point's well taken that little stories are some of the most important because the little stories give you the example of what's going on everywhere and if you just look at the media they are picking up those little stories like for instance my mother just celebrated her 90th birthday and we couldn't have the party we had uh, you know set up for her so we had a parade in front of her house you know they're just we're finding ways to 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 deal with this but you mentioned the school buildings and i know i've seen a lot of uh, chatter amongst parents who when can we get in there because our our students have items in the school building that we want, and I know the school administration is being very careful, and you already alluded to that. But uh, since these buildings have been closed for a number of weeks now, it appears to me, and this, base, this is based on what I see on Chalkbeat and some other uh, media outlets, most of the local school districts are looking to the state for guidance on how to start planning for next school year, the opening of school in August, and what that may look like. With any of the uh, contacts that, that you have with the Indiana State Teachers Association, does anybody have a feel for when these school buildings might be open and whether they will be able to open in August of this year? The guidance we have received thus far is that schools are closed for all activities basically through June 30th. And, you know, the governor indicated that, you know, he would address that issue in July. And from a state perspective, we've talked about this because uh, we have school districts, luckily not ours, but some school districts that started July. Noblesville does. Uh, Warren Township is one of the earlier starts in the area. IPS starts in July. And so, you know, we're wondering if waiting till July to make a decision it, you know, is going to be valid. And I think one thing that uh, districts are thinking about is, well, the the governor sort of took control of the situation when he closed the schools and, uh, you know, and indicated that they you know, were done for the rest of the year. So what if you make plans to start up and the governor doesn't let you? You know, so I, I've heard rumors about after Labor Day, but those are just simply rumors. Don't repeat it because it would be a rumor. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we will just we'll label it as a rumor, and you can take that what you want with it. It is not yet. And you're exactly right. The last thing the governor said was the end of June. He could decide earlier. but uh, And as you said, I think he chose that date, knowing many school corporations around the state do open in July. So that's, uh, right. that, that's important. Uh, and. Go and ahead. also, you know, of course, he's in conversation with the, you know, the Midwest governors and that coalition that they formed. And several of those states have state laws that don't allow schools to open until after Labor Day. So, you know, it could be like a conversation that they've sort of put off right now, you know, for that reason. 
I uh, follow a lot of people uh, involved in local education uh, on Twitter and social media, and I've seen a lot of examples of people thanking teachers during this Teacher Appreciation Week. So I'm just curious if uh, a parent or a set of parents might be listening to this, want to uh, express appreciation to the teachers for their own students, their own children, any recommendations you would make and how you could express your appreciation for your uh, child's teacher? I think that uh, probably in, in today's uh, realm, like an email, you know, of a positive uh, nature would be very appreciated by a teacher. Uh, you know, I think individual thank you notes are appreciated, but right now all the mail to all the schools are all going to one school building. So if you can imagine that, all of our 20-some schools, all the mail right now is being directed to one high school. And so it would be difficult to, you know, to use, you know, mail right now um, because I can only imagine how that's going to get sorted later. Um, I, I'm sure there's a system and delivery and all of that, but I think a, a very nice email. Um, I also think it goes a long way that if you let um, the building administration know that uh, you've been very pleased you know, with a particular teacher or with, you know, teachers in general, doesn't have to be a particular one. I think, you know, that always, that always goes a long way. Um, our foundation, uh, HSE Schools Foundation is, uh, you know, has social media hashtags and hashtag, you know, thank a teacher, uh, you know, running uh, right now. And uh, you can also donate to the foundation, uh, to recognize a particular teacher. So, you know, all of those, uh, you know, would be not necessary, but certainly appreciated, you know, by the teaching staff. I mean, we're teachers for a reason. You know, we've got a calling uh, to do this work. And I just talked to the head of the uh, the executive director of the foundation last week, and uh, I know things are going to get tough for nonprofits. It always does when there are economic downturns. So I would certainly urge people to not only support nonprofits that uh, you appreciate, but the school's foundation should, I think, be on that list. So I'm glad you mentioned them. I know that uh, this pandemic has impacted a program near and dear to your heart, We the People. It's a competition, for those who don't know, based on civic knowledge, and and students uh, have to uh, prepare a paper, present it, and defend it. Uh, Your HSE high school team qualified to compete at the national level, but you and your students decided not to go through the whole virtual system and uh, decided not to go and compete at the national level. That had to be a very difficult decision for you and the students involved in that program. Uh, it was. Initially, of course, we made the decision to stay in the competition, um, even when the venue in Washington, D.C. area was taken away. And then after being out in the virtual land for a week, uh, my kids decided that, you know, they they just could continue to do it. You know, they, uh, they wrote me the nicest letter um, detailing their reasons. And, you know, I had to you know, I explained like how the format was going to be. The format was, you know, they were still trying to work it out on the national level. So it was kind of constantly evolving. And so I kept them informed about that. And so I asked them, you know, to get together and talk. And of course they couldn't physically get together, but, you know, texting is a powerful tool when you're a teenager. So they were, um, you know, flying back and forth fairly, uh, 
fairly frequently that evening. And then one of them composed a very nice letter to me, you know, on behalf of the team and what their decision was. And so I respected that. And so for me, uh, that's still a class this semester. Uh, the students who elected, you know, receive academic credit. And so I have given them other tasks to do during e-learning. Um, initially, we were revising papers, but then when they decided not to compete, I changed the task. Now, Fisher's Junior High um, did decide to go on. And of course, they won uh, the uh, national invitational uh, that was held last Saturday. I'm glad so, you. I, that was my next. That was my next question. So you jumped again on that one. Yeah, I, I wanted to know what your reaction was when you found out that uh, those junior high students and Mike Fossil, uh, uh, who runs that program and has for at Fitcher's Junior High for a number of years, this is not their first national championship, but they decided to go into that uncertain world of virtual competition and still won the national championship. That has to be extra special. Yeah, they had. Um they had several Zoom practices, uh, you know, trying to simulate as much as possible what it was going to be like. Um, I was able to participate with them in one and practice judge. Uh, but, you know, we had a number of We the People teachers throughout the uh, central region, you know, that Mike is, Mike is friends with that volunteered to help. And so community members, too. I know Todd Zimmerman did on the Fisher City Council. He volunteered to help as well. Um, we were not working together that day that I was able to go, but I know he was on the list as a happy helper. And um, making decisions for junior high kids might be a little bit easier than making decisions for high school kids. You know, so, um, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that's a part of their curriculum. And so, you know, they elected to go ahead and do that. Yeah, I was and trying. I was, they did well. I, they did very well. I'm starting to think, I think, most or all of the students on your We the People team at HSC, were they not seniors? And there's a lot going on with, with seniors right now, I would assume. Yes, I had uh, one junior uh, on my team and the rest were seniors. And so, and that probably plays a part in it, in addition to just situations going on with families and, and things of that nature. So I Zoom with those students once a week. Uh, we have a set time on Thursday afternoons to uh, that we have been, uh, you know, in contact. So I still see them and we're still engaging in those quality conversations. Uh, uh, this week we'll be talking uh, about a podcast that they listened to from the National Constitution Center about the, uh, will coronavirus change criminal justice? And so there's, you know, a lot of good information there and, you know, good things for us to talk about, about decisions policy decisions that can be made on a national level. And that brings me to my next question. You're, you're doing a great job of foreshadowing what I'm going to ask next, because as, as a government teacher and then the, we, the people, all the different government uh, type of uh, programs that you're a teacher in at HSE, how do you bring in the current events, particularly now how government is and, and is not effectively dealing with this pandemic? Well, the, I'm very fortunate in the classes that I teach, you know, it, it comes very naturally. Um, in addition to this American politics course, I also teach AP government this semester. And in addition to prepping for the AP exam, we certainly have been talking a lot about federalism, which is um, an amazing topic of conversation now. And in fact, one of my students uh, two weeks ago he uh, he shared his screen to show 
one of his favorite pictures that he had found, which was a picture of a beach in Florida, uh, divided by different county restrictions. So one county allowed people on the beach and the other county didn't. And so, um, and so you could kind of see almost a dividing line in the sand, you know, of what federalism looks like, you know, uh, different levels of government doing different kinds of things. Uh, so we, we have talked about uh, current events in addition to prepping for the AP exam. Uh, in my constitutional law class, uh, we have also discussed current events. You know, obviously the Constitution runs through that class. And then the other uh, program I work with is the Law and Government Academy, which is also super sad because they, those students all had internships, you know, that ended um, in March. Oh. And uh, and so I have uh, worked to find alternative things for them to do as well. Well, in the last podcast some time ago where you and I talked, we actually got to do it in your classroom that time. We didn't have to do it virtually. But I asked you then about the teacher shortage and the fewer number of college students choosing education as a major. And you provided a lot of reasons why you think that is the case. Have you seen any signs this is changing or is the situation about the same? Well, it's interesting you asked that because um, I wrote a column for our HSEA, Hamilton Southeastern Education Association newsletter uh, that came out last week, I think. And uh, one of the things I addressed is like, you know, what would the future bring? You know, are teachers now deemed essential workers? You know, will more people want to be a teacher, uh, to be an essential worker? Will will people uh, more people choose a healthcare profession, for example? You know, to try to help the people. And so, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, that's just something I've been thinking about. You know, as of now, of course, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with colleges either with uh, student enrollment. Uh, I've been hesitant. I've been offered a couple of uh, different types of student teaching experiences like uh, that have come to across my virtual desk right now uh, of whether to accept uh, these applicants. One's a full student teacher and one was like doing just kind of a uh, like look through a classroom management type of thing. And I think it's difficult to make those acceptances right now because we don't know what the fall is going to look like. And, um, and so typically I receive a lot of requests, but in the last few years, those requests have gone way down and some years, no request at all, you know, for student teachers. That's interesting. Well, university department. Yeah. I, I, what I'm reading indicates that there are going to be some smaller, um, educational institutions at the college level that are going to have troubles surviving this. So, I mean, the large institutions will continue in whatever form. We don't know about the smaller ones. You know, we saw St. Joseph's College uh, go out of business a few years ago in northern Indiana. I never thought I'd see that happen. Any last message you'd like to give the community during this uh, Teacher Appreciation Week? I'd like to, to thank everyone Um uh, for being supportive of teachers and also would urge that like if you if you ever have a concern or any uh, question you know please contact the teacher that's the person who can fix it you know 
talk to the teacher first and, uh, and, you know, let the teacher help, you know, work out a solution to whatever issue there is. We're, we're here. We're willing to help, even though we're virtual now, um, but hopefully coming back to brick and mortar soon. Well, it's very good to find you safe and healthy and teaching, and I want to thank you for your time. Janda Chandler, president of the Hamilton Southeastern Education Association, thank you so much for giving me a part of your time today. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it.